you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And you remember, uh, we want to talk about regeneration or the new birth or what it means to truly be a Christian and what Christian virtues are and what it's like to really have the life of Christ. And um, I want to spend this morning uh, just considering one aspect of truth and that is uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you know Christ said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice that he's not talking of an earthly kingdom but a heavenly one. And as I said last night, all our experiences, if we're truly Christian, put us into a heavenly realm. If we have a real experience of God, then we're not really living an earthly in an earthly realm, we live in a heavenly one. And our heart and our life and our being is totally transferred from this world in the sense that our hopes and our aspirations are for the things above, not for the things of the earth. And I want to spend some time looking at it, because it's true to say that there's no person who ever has entered into the kingdom of heaven, or into the realm where God operates, who isn't poor in spirit. And so I need to understand in my heart and my life, what it means to be poor in spirit, then I can see whether truly I have the real experience that God expects, the experience that will bring me in to that kingdom. Whether there's a reality in my life that has brought me into close communion with God, or whether it's just some kind of doctrine and theory that man has made and concocted. You know, it's a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven that everyone that's there is poor in spirit. You can't fill something until it's empty. And in God's kingdom, we need emptying before we can be filled with his life. There needs to be a total emptying of self, self-esteem, self-reliance. In fact, all that we are needs emptying. We need God to deal with our inward being. And it's important to understand that you cannot be filled until you are emptied. You can't fill a new bottle of wine if there's old wine in it. You can't put new wine in that bottle while there's old wine there. You can't fill something that's already got something in. And so, in the principles of God, the first thing we need to see is the poor in spirit. It's put first in the Beatitudes. Uh, in chapter 5, we read, And seeing the multitude, he went up, in verse 1, into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain merciful. mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. And so, as I said last night, one of the things we need to understand is it's not one of the attributes of this scripture that I need. It's the whole. It's talking about a personality, the person, the spirit of God. And it's no good believing, oh, well, I've got one or two of these things. I either have all 
or there's something wrong. And it's not talking about natural attributes, as we said last night, it's talking about spiritual graces. And that's why Christ begins with the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when Simeon was in the temple and Jesus was brought to be circumcised the eighth day and Simeon took the baby up, it's recorded in scripture in his arms, and he lifted him up to heaven. And one of the things he prophesied was this child is set for the falling and rising again of many. In other words, Christ from his birth was set to bring about the fall and the rise again. A man cannot ever enter into God unless there's a real fall first. Unless there's a bringing down of self and the self-esteem and self-life totally and utterly destroyed. If that hasn't happened, there won't be any rising. And right from his birth, it was said that he was coming to bring the fall and the rising again. Now the question is, are you poor in spirit? Has God ever brought you to poverty inside, to a realization of your need? For if he hasn't, you have not yet even begun in the Christian life. You are not a Christian just because you believe a set of doctrines. You're not a Christian because you have certain ideas. You're only a Christian if God has worked a work of grace and brought you to new birth. In fact, you're hell-bound. You're bound for a Christless eternity unless God has worked a work of grace by his sovereign spirit and set you free. You have no hope. And it's an awful thing that there are many, many people who claim revelation of scripture, who claim that they know God, that they claim they know all sorts of things, who have never had an experience of God and have never come to poverty of spirit. You know, unless there has been real conviction, and when I say conviction, I mean a realization of your total degradation and vileness, you never can be converted. You might have felt that, you know, there were things wrong in your life, but if you haven't seen the degradation and the total depravity of your soul and your heart, you'll never become a Christian, you'll never get converted. If something doesn't strike you and you realize the depravity of your inward nature and you don't come to a total realization of that, then you can't be converted. You just can't be. Because without conviction of sin, there can be no forgiveness. How can a man repent of that which he doesn't know? How can a man cry out for deliverance for that which he hasn't seen? He cannot. And God works by his spirit in our hearts to bring us to a revelation of the absolute evil within our own beings. If so be we've ever had a revelation of God at all. Many there are that have never had a revelation of God. They don't know what God's like. They don't know who he is. They don't understand his holiness, his ways. And yet they profess Christianity. You're not a Christian unless you have first of all become poor in spirit, unless you've seen the poverty inside. The gospel first condemns before it releases. There's no way that condemnation won't become a real part in your life before there's release and deliverance. One of the awful things in this day and age is People quote the scripture, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And anyone who gets any conviction, they immediately start quoting that scripture. The difference is, they forget what the scripture actually says. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But you've got to be in him before the condemnation's removed. One of the awful things is claiming a promise for people who aren't really in him. And what it does is it gives them a false hope, it removes conviction of sin, it removes revelation of their self, 
and the wickedness and vileness of self and the people are resting in a totally false hope. They've never come to true repentance. Hence they're never really born. And if you try and bring conviction or conviction comes near their heart then the devil will quickly whisper in their ear oh there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus and they'll think oh well it doesn't matter you know I'm alright it's only the devil accusing me. When really it's God's spirit beginning to convict them and show them what they really are. And that is an awful deception to be in. I spent years being taught that uh, it's totally wrong to feel convicted. Trouble is that every so often someone would read a scripture and someone would preach and blow me down. I'd feel convicted about it. And I'd think, well, dear, oh dear. You know, and, and then the, the people would tell me that I was perfect according to their doctrine because I believed Jesus Christ. I, I'd laid hold on faith and I had laid hold on the things of God. Therefore, I should be perfect inside. Trouble was, every time I went and heard a preacher who was really of God, I didn't feel perfect inside, I felt far from perfect, I felt awful. I always remember going to a very well-known preacher's uh, place up, um, in Westminster Chapel and there was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's uh, passed on to glory now but he was a short man, very short. Must have been five foot nothing or five foot and an apology. Uh, and he was so short and small I was quite surprised because on a platform he looked quite big. But when you actually spoke to him, he'd have kind of gone under my arm and I wouldn't have noticed. He, he was so small. And I remember seeing him one day walking into a, a place and I was quite surprised at how small he was. Anyway, he was a preacher and he was preaching away one day and I went to this, uh, this well, uh, I suppose it's where the uh, intellectuals went. Not that I was an intellectual, but I wandered in there. And he was preaching away, and there were maybe two or three thousand people there. They used to get two or three thousand uh, times. This was eight years ago, nine years ago now. And they were all listening to him. And he preached a sermon, and boy, was it blood and thunder and hellfire and damnation, you know. And, I mean, it really got him going. And I shall never forget, as I walked out, there was this guy walking out with someone and he was absolutely scarlet in the face and perspiration was dripping off his brow and he was kind of mopping his brow with his hanky and he said doctor was a bit strange this morning <laughs> and he was so feeling awful and convicted but you know with his frightfully good accent and stuff he couldn't show what a vile person he was <laughs> he'd just say doctor was strange this morning and the other chap was white ashen white and I thought, they don't know what Christianity is all about. What they wanted was their ears tickled. What they wanted there was to hear things that made them feel nice. And what they got was the truth. And they didn't like it at all. And so I stood on the steps and I was fascinated as people were coming out, listening to the comments. Another man came out and he said, I thought he was a bit off today. <laughs> A bit strong. <laughs> you know, it's not the type of thing you expect from the doctor. <laughs> oh dear, poor pathetic creatures. Anyway, he certainly gave a supercharged sermon. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I felt convicted too. I thought, dear Lord, you know. And um, thank God I'd had a real experience of God but even so when I came out I began to wonder I thought oh dear you know am I or aren't I let's get this right and it was good to have your heart searched what I need to do if I'm wrong I want to know I'm wrong no point in laboring under misapprehensions awful thing you know if a doctor you go to a doctor and you ask him to examine you and the doctor examines you and tells you, you're all right, you know, there's nothing wrong with you at all. Apart from the fact you'll be dead next week. Um, but he doesn't bother to mention that because you've got a coronary that's terrible, a massive coronary, and you, you're going to go semi-paralyzed within an hour. And the doctor looks at a, a cardiograph and says, you know, nothing to worry about. And a lot of people go to churches and the minister behaves like that. 
He tells the people who anyone with a, a modicum of intelligence can see they're hellbound, and he tells them nothing to worry about. In fact, he'll give them a story about how you keep your pet dog, or how you keep your pet parrot, or some story which is totally disrelated from life and their heart's need. It's just some airy, fairy castle in the air. And when you sit there after an hour, you haven't understood a word of it anyway. But if you say to someone, you're vile, you're filthy, and inside your heart it's full of degradation and filth, and if you don't get it cleaned up, you're going to hell, they'd rather you talked about their pet dog. They wouldn't want to talk about what's inside. People don't like it normally. It's not good manners. I was told there's two things a good-mannered person doesn't discuss. Religion and politics. Well, I agree with politics. Because, let's face it, that is stupid. I mean, you, you know, there's only one way to be political and that's to be Godward. And politics is an awful thing. The only thing I would say is the curse of our earth is socialism. Not that I'm political, but it's true. Uh, socialism is the biggest evil there ever was because socialism doesn't work. I went to China. I always remember the interpreter in, when we were driving down a coach in, in uh, I have to think, where we were, Canton. Yeah, Canton. And there was this man uh, who was our interpreter. He could speak English very well, actually, even though my wife speaks Mandarin. And um, he could speak English. And I remember he was, we were chatting away with him and, and, you know, came to some questions about what they had there. Because in China, you know, they don't believe that all Westerners have motor cars. They think that's a, a, a bit of propaganda. The average person in the street we discovered, thought that the Americans never went to the moon. It was just propaganda from the Americans. Uh, you know, they didn't really get there. And as for everyone having motor cars, that's propaganda. And they thought that when we got to the border, they gave us special clothes to go into the China with, so we'd persuade the peasants we were wealthy. And they issued us with cameras at the border. That's what they've been told by their wonderful, uh, you know, the whatever you call them, the pings. Um, I don't know. Um, the, um, the ping pongs, yeah. But, you know, the top people. They told them that. And these people in the street, you could go and talk to them. Fortunately, my wife could speak Mandarin, and one of the guides we were with spoke perfect Mandarin, and you could talk to the peasants in the street. And when you went down the street, they'd all come up to you, they'd feel your clothes, they'd look at your camera, they'd never seen anything like it. And I remember going to a commune and they boasted that half the town had bicycles. And, and you know, we were splitting our sides with laughter. And over a third of them had wristwatches. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was advancement and development. And they actually had four tractors for 8,000 acres. And I saw three of them in parts. When we went to the workshop, they didn't work. And when you said tractor, what they meant was kind of a lawnmower type thing that you, you'd sit on, you know, that, and they called that a tractor. God deliver us. Um, and, and the poverty, and they were boasting of it. I remember being taken up to a hydroelectric plant. They said, we'll show you a hydroelectric plant the, the Americans built for us. And they took us up in a coach miles away and we went into this beautiful hydroelectric plant. There it was all laid out. The chap said to us, unfortunately, one of the turbines is broken and we can't repair it, but we'll switch on the other one. So I said, just a minute, what do you mean switch on the other one? Don't you use it all the time? Oh no, he said, no one's connected to it. <laughs> so they had a hydroelectric plant and they turned it on and it worked. They showed us how much electricity it would produce. No one was connected to it. It didn't go anywhere, but it was there. In fact, the Americans had spent two million dollars building the wretched thing. You'd have think that someone, 
it would have had the modicum of intelligence to say, just a minute, if you have electricity, don't you need to use it for something? Not then, they just turned it on, showed us it, and then turned it off quick. Didn't want to burn it out because there's no use for it. And I suppose they wait for the next tourist there. And there was a chap there. His job was to turn it on when the tourists came. And then to turn it off. Such is China. Great advancement. And then we said to this, uh, we were driving down the road, we said to this man in the culture, we said, well, uh, who has televisions in China? VIPs. Who has motor cars? Well, no one's allowed a motor car. You only have taxis, and only the VIPs ride in them. And VIPs, if they're top VIPs, have their own chauffeur-driven car. Well, who can afford the kind of luxuries in the shops? Well, VIPs. Well, who actually, you know, has carpets and, and all the luxuries we can see, the lovely silks that we see? Well, the VIPs. We went to a pottery plant and there they were making ceramics, you know, the beautiful ceramics that Chinese make, Ming vases to sell to the Westerners. That's a thousand years old. They were making them there. And there they were, doing it all, you know, the Ming vases, because the, you know, Mount Zedong had got them all destroyed, you know, in the Cultural Revolution. So now they're making, <laughs> you know, Ming vases. And um, we asked, well, what are they for? They said, oh, for export to the Western culture, you know, to the bourgeois. Well, doesn't anyone in China have them? Oh, yes, the VIPs. And we went round from place to place and we discovered the only people that had anything of any value were VIPs. And so in the end, obviously, the question has to come. And it came, sure enough. We asked the interpreter, what do you want to be? What's your ambition? A VIP. I mean, that's all he wanted to be. You know, everyone was equal. Except the VIPs. And they were very equal. And so what they'd got was a small elite who had all the wealth. And that's what socialism is. Deadly evil. And, you know, one of the things that is used, why I mention it this morning, is because this scripture is used very much by people who want to justify such an evil and iniquitous system. And it's awful. I believe that everyone deserves reward for how hard they work for their natural endowments. And, you know, you reward people according to their value in society. And some people are more valuable than others. And we have to appreciate that. Not everyone's equal. You were born, some are born men, and some are born women, or male and female, should I say. Now, there's certain things a woman can do that, thank God, a man can never do. And there are some things a man naturally does that the weaker sex could never do. And thank God for the difference. And may it always remain so. I don't want to be a woman. I have no desire to be a woman. I don't want to do what a woman does. And thank God I married a woman who doesn't want to do what I do. She keeps her place. And that's quite correct. I believe in it. I think this most awful thing where you get a, a, a changing of the roles. God deliver us from it. You know, the woman's, well, she's divinely equipped to have children and to have a family and to keep the home. And the man's equipped to go out and earn the bread and butter. And that's the way it is. And that's the way it should remain. And a woman needs to know her place and man needs to know his place. And that's the end of it. You say, well, isn't that male chauvinism? No, it's God's plan. It's the way God ordains things. Say, so, well, what about women that don't get married? Well, then they can go out and they can, um, by the grace of God, learn to work and to live and to be happy, but they don't try and usurp a man's place. You know, when woman's in charge, you always get chaos. And that's the truth. Terrible thing. 
And what we have to understand is it's not talking about that kind of mamby-pamby socialism and humanism, trying to make everyone equal. This isn't what poor in spirit means. Poor in spirit means a spiritual attribute. And we have to understand that what it is is man's attitude towards himself. You see, I need to understand that the world has one set of values. If you look at the world, the world loves the people who are self-reliant, self-confident, full of self-expression. And that is the ideal in the world today. What they do in public schools is, as I said last night, they teach you the stiff upper lip, you don't show your feelings, you go through life and, you know, you're the man. Now, in truth, that is a deception because you pretend you don't feel things. You pretend it doesn't matter. You pretend you're capable when you're not. And that's an awful thing. It's all a life of pretense. God deliver us from it. And look at the children today. Have you noticed what the ideals of no restraints and, and free expression have borne? Look at the pink-haired left-wingers. Look at the long-haired louts. Look at the children now who dress in clothes that are held together with safety pins. Who have jeans that look as though they've got so many zips around them you don't know where they're going to come undone. And, and they have pink hair. They have hair that sticks up and protrudes from And they call that freedom. And they have safety pins in their nose and... Uh, oh, all sorts of horrible things and that's self-expression well I can do without it can't you I don't want my children to express themselves if that's what self-expression is I don't want freedom if that's what freedom is do you but that's what society is born you go down the road people get up and they say they demand a job when I was a young man you had to earn the right to a job. You had to earn a right for things. Nowadays they have placards with, we have rights. Man hasn't got rights, man has to earn them. You have no God-given right to a job. If you don't earn the right to a living, you deserve to starve. You have to work. But that isn't something that's palatable in this day and age. It's not palatable to believe that man has a, 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 no rights apart from the fact that if he works and he's diligent and he trains himself and he becomes skillful he'll earn a living and if he doesn't do that he deserves to starve he deserves a scrappy and yet you'll find thousands now march they march down the roads it's about all they can do I remember watching Wedgwood Ben such a Oh, well, words fail me. But there's a man marching in front of a queue, and there was a chap with hair that stuck up about six inches, you know, kind of plastered up in one little thin streak on his head. And he was complaining. He had tattoos in his ears and pinned through his nose. And, and he was complaining that no one would employ him. And he said he had a right to a job. Well, could you imagine walking into a shop and seeing that monstrosity about to serve you? Would you go and ask him for anything? The only thing you'd expect was, woo woo out of him. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's farcical, but that is what self-reliance has bought. Free expression. That's what's really in the individuals. They think that it's somehow beautiful to look like that. They have no mercy on our eyes. They don't understand that there are other people that think it's grotesque and ugly. They want to be noticed. They are. I notice them. I think it's revolting. And I think a lot of people look at them and think, how revolting. Well, I suppose they've got notice, but who wants notice for that? There's no virtue in being revolting. No virtue in being ugly. No virtue in being poor. It isn't a virtue. It's an awful thing. And yet poor in spirit. Now what they've taken it to mean is poverty. In fact, you've got Francis of Assisi took this one scripture 
and he started declaring his um, great doctrines of poverty and chastity and the vows and monks in the Catholic Church, that wicked place of Babylon, they, they believe in chastity. I suppose the one virtue in such a doctrine as chastity and poverty is that at least they're the last generation. <clears throat> if you understand what I mean. Uh, there won't be another of them in their family because that's the end of them. That's if they keep their vows. Unfortunately, they usually don't. And so you find in South America, for instance, you can find a little orphan house where all the priest's children live. <clears throat> and that's one of the awful things. But Francis of Assisi took this blessed of the poor in spirit and he made a great doctrine of poverty. And he went around in a kind of monk's habit and he tied knots in his cord round his belly and one knot was for... Uh, poverty, one was for chastity and the other one I can't remember hmm? obedience, that's it obedience, of course he didn't obey anyone, he became the boss <laughs> but all the monks under him had to obey so they got three knots in, in the rope you know, and there they go around, thank God they're the last generation of them, I wish they'd all got rid of and, and they worship poverty. Now there's nothing great about being poor. In fact, a poor man's usually the proudest man you can meet. There's a lot of people who are proud of poverty. They think there's some aesthetic value. I meet people who are eccentrics, who think that poverty or, or wearing old clothes and looking dowdy is some great virtue. Or, or you know, wearing their their suits that they look as though they've come from Oxfam there's no virtue in it poverty has no virtue why King David that great man of God prayed he said Lord he said let me not be so rich that I forget thee let me not be so poor that I curse thee and there is a sense in which poverty can bring alienation from God just as much as riches there's no virtue in either I think it's awful to be poor. It's not so helpful to be rich. There's no virtue in either. In fact, in Proverbs it says that the sluggard poverty will come upon him. It's a, it's a judgment of God, you know, poverty. Don't think it's something that is uh, a great virtue. There is no virtue at all in poverty. That's the lack of things. Why? It says in the scripture that a man do that doesn't provide for his wife and children is worse than an infidel. So poverty has no virtue at all. And we need to understand that and get it out of our hearts. It's a blasphemy that came through Rome and Francis of Assisi and it's actually devil worship. That kind of aesthetic poverty is an awful thing. It's not real. And people are proud of being poor. There's no great virtue in poverty. An empty belly never helped anyone. And we need to understand that. Poverty is not something that, that is to be boasted of. But poverty of spirit's a different thing. Now the Roman church took this and they left out the spirit and just took, put it up as poverty. And as I said, Francis of Assisi got a whole group of idiots to follow him. And they followed him round and tied three knots in their rope, as I said, and off they went. And they upset the Pope then, who was a bit of a wayward fellow anyway, most Popes were. And at that time, I can't remember which one it was now, it was one of them anyway, who had a couple of wives, and, or should I say concubines, and, you know, maybe half a dozen children, and, and you know, lived in sumptuous style. So Francis of Assisi got this scripture and then built a whole heretical doctrine of poverty. And people believe it, and no virtue in it. But it is interesting to note that most Catholic countries are poor. Just go to Ireland and look, poverty. Go South America and look, it's poverty. It thrives where there's poverty. It's an evil spirit. Now I don't believe in that and I don't believe that's what Christ meant. He talked about poverty of spirit. 
not poverty of wealth. And we need to understand the truth. What does it mean? Well, it, it's like this in the church. If you take Charles Wesley's hymn, it was, Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. In other words, it's a man who's come face to face with God and sees his need. A man who's come face to face with God, not with ma other men, but with God, sees his need. There was one man who was a, um, a purported modern Christian, not a Christian at all, but, you know, one of those who, who was a clergyman. And he's written this about this hymn, this beautiful hymn of Charles Wesley. He wrote, What man desiring a post or a job would dream of going to an employer and saying to him, Vile and full of sin I am. Ridiculous. Now this was a skeptic ridiculing Charles Wesley's hymn. But what you've got to understand, this isn't a statement you make to another man. This is a statement you make when you meet the living God. When you truly meet God face to face, you know you're vile and full of sin. And if you haven't ever met God, you won't ever have come to a revelation of it. If God hasn't really touched your heart and you haven't come to an encounter with God, you won't see what's inside you, you'll think you're a nice person. But when God really meets you, you'll see the depravity of your soul, you'll see your pride your snobbishness, your attitudes, you're thinking you're something better than someone else, evil, vile and wicked. And when you meet God face to face, you'll cry out like Isaiah did. Oh Lord, woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips. Or you'll cry out like Peter, the apostle. That great self-assertive, arrogant fellow he was, Peter. And all of a sudden he got a revelation of who Jesus was. And he fell down on his face and he cried out, Oh, depart from me. For I am a wicked man. Go on, O oh Lord, depart from me. Now that is the sign of a man who's met God. He meets God and he says to God, Look, I'm vile. If a man's really met God, he knows his own vileness. He knows his sin. Now that is poverty of spirit. That's when a man sees that everything in him, that even proffers to be good, is evil. Every virtue, human virtue, that the world considers something, is evil. Because it's of the spirit of the world. A man who's met God knows the absolute twisted, perverted nature that's really inside. And they cry out, Oh God, depart from me. Now that is poverty of spirit in God's sense of it. My question to you, and I'm addressing you personally, is have you ever got there? Have you ever seen that in your own heart and life? Have you ever come to a place where you've met God face to face and you know the depravity of your own heart. You know what's inside. And you hate it and you loathe it. And you cry out, oh God, deliver me from it. If you haven't ever come to that place, you're not a Christian. If you haven't ever got to a revelation of that, you've never had conviction of sin. If you think you're a good person, you're hell bound. You've never met God. There's nothing good in man. And until you've been absolutely stripped of any hope of self, of any hope of self-reliance or being able to do anything, until that's been torn away from your soul, you're rich in spirit. Until you see the depravity of self, you're rich. But when you see the depravity, you come to poverty. You suddenly come to a revelation, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can say, there's no determination I can make, there's no way I can change myself, there's vileness from top to bottom in my soul, God deliver me. Now that is a man who's had a revelation of God. You'll find it right throughout the Old Testament, 
Time after time a man meets God. Angel comes and appears to Daniel and he says, I fell as one dead. There remained no strength in me. That's poverty of spirit. When you meet God, there's somehow there's no hope. There's nothing you can plead. There's nothing you can say. You just know your vileness. And you know if God doesn't have mercy and change you, you're lost. Now if you haven't had that revelation, you're not a Christian. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Have you ever got that poor? Have you ever seen the poverty? Well, if you haven't got there, as I say, there's been no real conversion in your life. There cannot be. Poor in spirit. Why, I meet some people who think they're so wonderful, it's awful. I meet people who have got such a high idea of themselves and boast so much, and you can see the pride exuding from every pore. They've got such a high ideal. They're not poor in spirit. They're hell bound. No work of God has ever reached them or touched them. Blessed, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. Why, the people who truly met Christ and met God are the ones of those who know they're so unworthy and they're so, so far removed that they deserve hell. And they wonder that God could ever be merciful to them. They're the people that God meets. Now, I don't mean the Uriah Heap type. Don't think that, have you ever heard of Uriah Heap? You know, the man who went about said, I'm, I'm your humble and obedient servant. I humbly ask you this, I humbly do that, I humbly, you know, I humbly crave your pardon. I, I, that's not poor in spirit, that's just an awful thing. You meet people who are tops in humility, who are ever so humble. You also meet the people who think that outside of, uh, you know, to be humble and to be poor in spirit, you have to be weak. Peter was still courageous. His personality wasn't dramatically changed. Peter was Peter. Before he met Christ, he was Peter, that self-asserted man. Courageous, bold, but relying on self. After he met Christ, he was courageous, bold. But he knew in himself he was a total failure, and he relied on Christ's strength. But the courage was still there, the boldness was still there. He didn't become a weak, spineless individual. I'm not talking about that. God deliver us from that idea. A man who's met God knows he, there's nothing in him that's good. He doesn't rely on himself anymore. He relies on God, but he still has courage. He still has boldness. He'll speak what he believes and is prepared to die for it. He'll stand up and defy all of the world. He doesn't care. People don't like what I preach. Go somewhere else. Don't like what I stand for? That's it. I still stand for it. I don't care. For it's what God speaks. You say, well, surely you shouldn't have that attitude. Christians got that attitude. He's stopped relying on self. You can't build a church. Christ builds a church. You can't convert a man by persuasion or argument. Christ causes them to be converted. There's some that will walk in the building and God will meet them. There's others who walk in the building and come for years and God won't touch them. And they'll go to hell. Can I do anything about it? Not at all. God does it. He's sovereign. What I can do is faithfully proclaim the word of God and if God so chooses by his grace to save some, well, hallelujah. It's the foolishness of preaching. It's a stupid method that God has chosen in man's eyes. But it works. I don't know who will be converted and who won't. As I said, Spurgeon said, if you had a yellow stripe down the back, he'd go around lifting your shirt and looking to see whether you had the yellow stripe for those who are going to be converted. As you haven't got that, you preach whomsoever will may come and those that will do. And that's the way it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now understand, it's not a... Uh, 
reality. It's not something you do. You don't suppress your feelings. There's a lot of people who think to become poor in spirit, and they hold up this, you know, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, is something that you aspire to. I want to tell you, there's no way of becoming poor in spirit if God doesn't show you your poverty. If God doesn't show you how vile you are, there's no good getting down and thinking, oh, I'm vile, I'm terrible. Oh, I, I, I should feel vile and terrible, so I do feel vile and terrible. Or, or someone comes to you and says, the scripture says all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. You're one of those all and you say, oh yes, I'm one of those all, oh, I'm terrible. There's people who come along to you and say, oh, I'm a terrible person. They don't really believe it. What they want you to say is, no, you're not. And if you say, I agree, you're far worse than you realize. What do you mean? I've had people say that to me. One woman came to me, she said, you know, I'm terrible, I don't know how Christ saved me. I said, my dear, you don't know just how terrible you are, you're awful. What do you mean? What do you mean? You're being insulting. And two minutes before, she was telling me she was horrible. I agreed with her and merely stressed it, and she really got angry with me. I got a tirade out of her mouth which showed she was even more terrible than I thought. But this time she was explaining to me she wasn't terrible at all. I'd misunderstood her. She wasn't that bad. And there's a lot of people like that. You know, they're tops in humility. Oh, I'm terrible, you know. No one loves me. I can't under You tell them, yes, you are. What do you mean? What do you mean? How can you say such a thing? I mean, okay, I've got my problems. Everyone's got their problems. And you know they don't really have a low estimation of themselves. It's really quite high. People come to me and say, you don't understand, my past life has been so terrible, you know, so difficult, no one understands. And you start agreeing with them. And then suddenly they become all defensive. Well, I'm not that bad. So-and-so's worse than me. I never did so-and-so. I've never done this. I didn't do that. Uh, You suddenly realise they don't think they're terrible at all. It's a false kind of egotistical wallowing. You know, I remember one woman up in Liverpool. She used to pray and, you know, you'd see her little tears trickling down her cheeks. Her heart cow. And she'd pray, oh God, she'd say, make me a doormat. (laughs) You know, I just want to be a doormat in your church. And I used to think, I'd like to wipe my feet on her. (laughs) I mean, what pathetic, you know, and she was a proud, arrogant... And, and, and then she, you know, another one was, Lord, teach me how to get down in the gutter with the other people. You know, as if she won in the gutter already. Snob. Yuck. And I used to think, as soon as she started praying that thing, oh God, shut her up. You know, and off she'd go, and she, you know, real tears. She actually believed she was better than everyone else. She had to get down in the gutter to reach them. She was on the pavement. She was a real gutter snipe. Uh, It was awful. And there she was. Oh, so humble. You know, she she was prepared to be trodden on by anyone. But you just put a toe near her and see the reaction. Boy, she went off like fireworks. I remember one day I was praying for someone and she said something that was totally wrong. And I said, oh, be quiet, woman. Oh, She wasn't a doormat any longer. She was a porcupine. (laughs) I tell you, every little bit of it went boing. A skunk as well. She left a dirty smell. You know, she walked around as though she got a wrong smell under her nose. Have you met people like that, you know? They look as though they've got smell. Kind of their nose in the air. They think they're something. God deliver us from them. They're too good to be on the earth. You know, she was like that. Awful. 
boy, you should have seen her eyes. I tell you, you couldn't wipe your feet on her. Still, you always learn. That's, that's the joy of being a minister. You see the funniest things you do. You see, people like that, they are, they are, well, and you hear people pray. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones records in one of his books how he went up to preach in a church and this elder kind of came to meet him, deacon rather, came to meet him at the station. And there's Martin Lloyd-Jones, he hasn't met this man before and he gets off the train and he's got a case with him with his clothes in, you know, he's going to stay overnight and this man literally tears the case out of his hand, you know, humble man. Uh, wants to carry his case for it. And then walking down the station, he says, um, well, he said, you know, he introduced himself, so I'm brother so-and-so. He said, um, you have to understand, I'm a no-one in the church. <laughs> I'm a nobody. Just a deacon, you know, I'm a nobody. I, I mean, I don't do anything. I just carry the minister's cases when they come to visit and put them up. I'm a nobody. And Martin Lloyd-Jones commented, now, a nobody doesn't need to tell you. I mean, to tell you they're nobody makes them somebody. They're a, a nobody. Now that's something. But a nobody doesn't need to tell you he's nobody. Because he knows he's nobody, so he doesn't try to become somebody by telling you he's nobody. He, he's got no pretensions. He doesn't, he's just what he is. Nobody. And... The person who tells you is tops in humility, you always get suspicious of. At least I do. Someone comes along, well, I'm nothing really. You know that if you agree with them, boy, are they going to get a bit irritated with you. So Martin Lloyd-Jones records this man, he was quite a proud fellow, really. When he got to know him, he realized this nobody liked to run everything. There's a lot of nobodies like that, you know, they're ever so humble. But Christ speaks of the poor in spirit. The people who are, really see themselves as they are, that know they're not worthy, they're the people that God chooses. The people that run, they're the people that God chooses. Do you know in the church today there's so many people trying to be ministers, so many people want to be preachers, so many people looking after gifts. But the person who's come to poverty of spirit, he's fleeing from it. The person who's come to true poverty and is poor in spirit, he just doesn't care about those things. May God begin to move in our hearts and show us what it means to be blessed to be poor. To come off the pride and self-esteem, to come off the false things and see only a revelation of yourself from God's spirit can make poverty real in you. I love a man who's truly poor. The disciples, when they heard Jesus talking, they said, well, you know, Lord, it's impossible. Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. You can't come to poverty of spirit unless God brings you there. You can't come to feeling the evil wickedness of your heart unless God shows it you. It's not something you can work up. It's not something you can believe. It's not something you can lay hold on. It's something that's a divine revelation. Either God has mercy and shows you, or you remain rich and go to hell. You can begin to cry out to God to have mercy and show you your poverty. To bring you to a place where you realize your total lack of anything good. And God in his faithfulness will do it. But it's not something you can work up. It's not something you can believe. It's something that's either a revelation from God or you're lost. Blessed, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God give us that blessed state where we come to a place where we understand that we are nothing, that we have nothing. It's only the mercy of God that brings us into anything. It's only the mercy of God that shows us.
what we really are. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing I can give God. There's nothing in me that's of any value. Nothing. I come to God totally empty, totally barren. I don't come with a boldness and a brashness and an audacity to claim things from God. I come knowing his sovereignty, his holiness, and my unworthiness. And if a man doesn't come to God that way, there's no way he can ever meet God. If a man doesn't have that within his heart, he is totally deceived. And the further on you go with God, the more you see your great need of him. May it become the true cry of our hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. May it become a truth in your life. May God work in you till you come to that place of being poor in spirit. All self-reliance goes. The worldly spirit goes. And you realize that only by the grace of God you can live and move and respond to him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You know it was best expressed by that wonderful man John Newton. He was a slave trader and he used to go and capture slaves and take them in ships across to America. And when he was going, God gloriously saved his life and brought him to a revelation of himself. And when he came to that revelation, he wrote a hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a hymn that the world's taken up. They don't understand his heart. He saw the vileness and the degradation of his soul. And he wrote it from the cry of his heart. It was amazing grace to him that saved a wretch like me. How many people sing it, but they don't really believe it. They don't see the wretchedness of their inward state. We're going to sing it. May God bring it to our hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. May God bring that poverty to you. Till you get the revelation and you know your great need of him. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found. Was blind. But now I see, t'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. When a man comes to faith, when a man comes to a revelation of the wretchedness of his estate, then he sees the grace of God in Jesus Christ that saves. Jesus sat on the mountain and he spoke to the multitudes. The first thing he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What an awful thing that there's so few that have realized that blessed state. Newton knew it. Yes, when this heart and flesh shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Let's stand and sing it, shall we?
Father, thou knowest the state of each heart. Lord, only thy spirit can reveal to any soul the wretchedness, the emptiness, the barrenness, the poverty of a heart. Lord, man can only proclaim thy word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By your spirit take that word, O God, and bring revelation to the heart till true conversion takes place, till the reality of it becomes the very life of our souls. God bless you and keep you. I just wanted to say that it's <clears throat> two years ago today that God showed me my need of Him and that Him says everything. Sorry, sorry, Jackie. That hymn says everything. It does too. But you know, for some people it's ten years, for some people it's five years, for some people it hasn't been yet. And that's the tragedy. May God apply the word to the heart and the life. God bless you and keep you all, and God willing, see you next week.